Welcome to Encouraging Truths for Today. We're glad to bring you this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. Now please join us as we learn to grow deeper in our relationship with God and each other. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And after we read, we'll conclude our prayer. Beginning in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized or evident among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many have died. So, Father, it is our prayer that you would give us eyes to see warning signs in our own lives. We contemplate the context of the Corinthian church. Father, I pray that through your word today, you would make the Lord's Supper even more precious to us than ever before. And so, Father, it's our prayer, especially my prayer, that you would speak through me. Because unless you speak, I have nothing at all to say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Since we're in between a series of sermons, as I prayed about today, I, I really sensed it would be a great opportunity for us to take some time and, and 
refocus scripturally on the Lord's Supper and the significance of that. Twice in that passage, it refers to partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so our focus today is going to be on self-examination, approaching the Lord's table in a worthy manner. What does it mean to approach the Lord's table in a worthy manner? Let's set the context of the early church. You recall that early on, uh, the gathering of believers was predominantly in homes. They would also continue to go to the temple there in Jerusalem, and it was in the homes that they broke bread together, they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, to prayers and the giving of thanks. And so it was in the context of those, those home uh, groups where they would celebrate often uh, the Lord's Supper. And it was usually in the context of a meal shared together, uh, a meal that was kind of a feast of love together, celebrating the love of Christ. And then there was the expression of the new covenant as described in the text of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. As you can imagine, over time, as the gospel moved from place to place and people carried on those similar experiences, that it would become easy for something as rich and real as the Lord's Supper to lose its focus. The context here in Corinth, in that church that was troubled with several issues, was that their focus had shifted away from that which was most important. If we're not careful, that happens in our lives, doesn't it? For instance, we could walk into this room week after week for all the wrong reasons, with uh, impure motives, with hidden agendas in our lives. So we know that the church at Corinth was uh, divided over leadership. They, some said, I follow Paul. Some said, I follow Peter. Some said, Apollos. And then others said, well, we follow Christ. Then they were divided over spiritual gifts and which were most important. And they were divided over the way they functioned when they came together to worship. And so here Paul is addressing specifically that focus of worship when this congregation would come together and partake of the Lord's Supper. So as we read there, it goes without saying that partaking of the Lord's Supper is a very serious matter. It, it's simple in that it's bread and juice, but it's very serious because of the symbolic nature symbolizing the blood of Christ. And so I, I want us to always guard against, as a church family, of allowing this to simply be a closing ritual that we perform at the conclusion of our services. I remember years ago, we would close the service with our offering, and we still do in a sense because we, we place our offering in these receptacles right here by 
the Lord's Supper, but we would have a time of reflection and we would have what was called a uh, musical offertory piece played and it, it really became a time where people were discussing where they were gonna have lunch, uh, picking up their purses and putting on their coats, whatever, rather than that time of reflection. Now, I have not sensed any abuse in this closing ritual. I'm just saying it's got to remain much more than just something we do before we leave the building. And so I think we have discovered something very meaningful in our lives, and it is continuing to be a, a precious blessing for us as individuals and families. So, so do not take this as me seeing some abuses here or anything like that. This is a warning to us that we never allow that to happen here. Remember in the past, we observed the Lord's Supper quarterly, which meant four times a year. One of those times happened to be our Christmas Eve communion service at that time. And so there were three other times through the year where we would observe the Lord's Supper. In a practical sense, that was not effective because we had someone that had been a member for a year, had been away on Christmas, had happened to be out with illness or travel. They were very active in our church, but that first year that they were a member, they came to me after that and said, do we not observe the Lord's Supper in our church? We realized what a tragedy that was. And so as we were praying and, and looking at what it meant to be a biblical church for us in this location, two things surfaced from Scripture. One is that we were to be elder-led, not elder-ruled, but elder-led, involving the congregation together in decisions that we took the lead in as elders, but also the, the more frequently observing of the Lord's Supper became very imperative from Scripture. So we looked at having it every week as we do. One of the arguments in the past has been, if you do that every week, it will lose its importance to us. But testimony after testimony has proved to be this has become even more precious and special to us because we know that we're gonna come to a time where we're focused on the cross, we're thinking about his sacrifice for us, and it causes us to contemplate our lives during the week knowing that we are going to gather at the table. And so we do it weekly. Uh, we want to keep it at the center of what we do at the conclusion of the service because it also brings whatever message I've preached to focus upon the cross, doesn't it? It, it calls us to remember that regardless of what we might get distracted by when we come to this, we are focusing on the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. So let's look together at the passage we read, and I think these are great warning signs for us as individuals and as a congregation. In verses 20 and 21, first challenge that he makes against their conduct is they focused on self 
rather than the Savior. He's already talked to them about their factions among you. And those factions at times surface those who have been approved and are genuine believers. But he says in verse 20, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, he is stating a conclusion about their conduct. When they're coming together, the primary purpose of their gathering together had lost the meaning of gathering to partake of the Lord's Supper. It had become more about the meal that they were sharing and and, uh, in East Texas, it would have been about recipes and and whose mashed potatoes are better or whatever, you know, just different focuses that could happen around that meal. They were more focused on on self than on the Savior. And so he's not saying that that was proper and that they weren't together for that. He was saying, you're failing to gather to observe the Lord's Supper and make that the focus of your gathering. You're distracted by so many things. And he goes on to explain that in verse 21. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What he was saying is some eat to excess, others get nothing, and it's, it's not effective. Now, it wasn't just about how they partook of the Lord's Supper. It's what happened prior to that. One of the challenges we face is when we enter the building to gather in corporate worship, to somehow, through conversation and then settling in to worship, to to begin to focus on the Savior and not on, on self. And so they were stepping ahead of others. They were indulging in the meal. Uh, There's an implication here that there was a great division in the church between the rich and the poor. And when they came together, the rich were the ones that were indulging and the poor were being left out. Regardless of the specifics, the big issue was they came in focusing on self and not the Savior. Because if they were to gather for the specific purpose of observing the Lord's Supper, their focus would have been on the Savior and not upon themselves. They came focused on their physical desires rather than spiritual concerns. Through the years, you've probably heard, as I have, excuses uh, that people make that are physical. Now, some of us have physical issues that that hinder us in some ways that make it practically difficult and impossible to sit in a worship service and do things like that. I'm not talking about being able to have legitimate reasons. Why? I'm talking about excuses that I've heard through the years. I remember on one occasion, someone that I knew rather well uh, told me that they couldn't stand 
very long and sing. And I, I understand there are people who can't. This person could. And I knew them rather well. And, and I said, well, we will let you bring your putter with you to church and lean on it like you do at the golf course for hours. And maybe that'll help you. And uh, that person didn't laugh, but their wife really enjoyed that comment because that was true. I've also had people say, that they went to the theater to see a movie and, and it was so spellbinding, gripping, it lasted for almost three hours and they didn't even notice that they had sat there for three hours. And in the very next breath, that really, they have said, man, I can't come and sit for an hour or an hour and a half at church. Why? Interest level, wouldn't it be? And on and on, we could make excuses. Now, I'm, I'm saying I understand people have legitimate concerns and reasons. But I, I'm talking about when we come into this place more focused on physical desires rather than spiritual concerns, we have missed the whole point, haven't we? We've missed the whole point. One time I came into the sanctuary here. The youth were going to be playing. The drums were up there. A few people had exited the building in hives, leaving because of the drums. Somebody met me at the door, and they said, we've lost four people today because of those drums. And I said, well, we lost three people last week because of the air conditioning, so I think it's all going to balance out. We can find all kinds of reasons to... Focus on physical things rather than spiritual concerns. And so in a way, we, we bring those needs and those issues in our lives into worship with us so the word of God can deal with us and address those things. But on the other hand, there are some physical concerns and things that we lay aside when we enter the building so that we can focus on spiritual concerns that need to be addressed regarding our heart and our lifestyle as believers. So when we look at this passage, they were more focused on and concerned about physical hunger than personal holiness. They were more concerned about leaving with a, a full stomach than filling their heart with the truth of God. Uh, they were more concerned about being selfish and sliding others at whatever cost to get what they wanted rather than a genuine focus on the Savior. And so that's the first thing he addresses. So as we enter the place of worship, we should always ask ourselves in some form, where is my focus today? Is my focus on self or on the Savior. Then there's a second issue he addresses in the passage. You find it in verse 22. He goes on with this theme and he says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you, he says. There's that issue of 
of wealth being part of the driving force behind all of this. They had houses in which to eat. They came with extravagance, and they somehow demeaned those who had nothing and were struggling. And he says, is there any reason I should praise you for this? He says, I do not praise you for this. Why? Because secondly, they resembled the culture more than they resembled Christ. You see, when we gather for worship, we should see each other differently than the world sees us. The world categorizes us, our culture categorizes us in a variety of ways, socially, economically, racially, uh, by our gender. The culture sees a variety of things by political preference, by geographical location. But the scripture says in Christ, all of those distinctions are laid aside. We are all individual believers that form the body of Christ who have come to know him. And we don't bear the distinguishing factors that the culture lays upon us. We we bear the reality of what God says about us. According to God's word and according to the kingdom of God, there are only two classes of people those who are in Christ and those who are not in him. Those who are lost, as the Bible says, and those who are saved. Those who are in the family of God and those who aren't, those who are in the kingdom of God, those who are living in the kingdom of darkness. That's the only distinction that that we should see when we gather for worship. Are we in Christ? Are we brothers and sisters in Christ, not focusing on our ability to wear fine things, drive fancy things, live in huge things, whatever all of that would be to the world means nothing when you stand before God. So when we come into this room, our focus should not be on parading our wealth or our standing in community and in the culture, but come humbly before Christ on level ground as believers. The problem was they they were resembling the culture. You see, in that culture, there, there really was no middle class. There was the extremely wealthy and the extremely poor. As a matter of fact, one way you could measure someone's wealth was by how close they slept to the ground. So someone that slept on a um, blanket or on the floor itself, that would be a sign of poverty. Somebody slept in a nice bed, lived in a nice home. That would be a sign of wealth. Then it would have other characteristics. So in Corinth, there were those who were very wealthy, those who were extremely poor. That had become a way by which they measured themselves. But he was saying, I don't praise you for this. 
You come in demanding and demeaning of others. So they were allowing their social distinctions that were culturally driven to magnify their differences and to fracture the church. Hebrews 10, we're told that we're to come together for the stirring up of love and of good works. That's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Now, I've known people that were pretty good at stirring up the church, but it wasn't toward love. But our goal is to stir one another up toward love and toward building up the body of Christ. When you come to this place of worship, you should know two things are gonna happen. We're gonna stir up love among us and we're gonna build up one another so that we go out full of love and built up to share the gospel with a community that desperately needs it. But they were failing in that. They resembled the culture more than they resembled Christ. You might think, well, that was a very odd thing for them to do in Corinth, but isn't that happening all over our nation? We have bought a lie in many congregations from the enemy that goes like this. If we become like the culture, the culture will want to be like us. Do you see how crazy that train of thought is? If we become like the culture, the culture doesn't want to become like us because we're already like them. Charles Spurgeon said, the reason the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. And if we're not careful, we sacrifice far too much to try to be like the world so that they'll like us and hopefully love our Savior. But if our Savior has not transformed us, there is nothing there for them to desire. And so that's what was happening in Corinth. There was so much at stake because of the example they were setting as a local body of believers. So they focused on self rather than the Savior. They resembled the culture more than they resembled Christ. And then thirdly, they created a mess rather than proclaiming the message. It it had all become such a, a mess that the message was being lost. Notice there beginning in verse 23. Paul is speaking, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. We call that evening, the last supper, that meal, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you, Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread 
and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Do this in remembrance of me, he says twice. So the picture there was, this is a message that we deliver. Not just that which is partaken of, but the way in which we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a picture of the cross for us, just like baptism is, and we observed that just a moment ago. Baptism is a picture of Christ's sinless life lived when he came in his earthly life and ministry. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary, sacrificial death for us. He was buried, and he rose again. So a moment ago, through Kurt's obedience to the Lord in being baptized, he proclaimed the Lord's death to us. Sinless life, buried and raised again. And it also pictured for us an outward expression of our inward experience, and that is when we come to Christ, the old has passed away, all things have become new. There's nothing of saving value in that water in which we baptize people. It is an expression of what Christ did for us and what Christ does for us. And as a person is immersed, it paints a beautiful picture of the cross. As a person partakes of the Lord's Supper, it paints a beautiful picture of the cross. You'll you'll come to these trays and you'll see broken pieces of bread or cracker. It is a picture of the broken body of Jesus. When you partake of the juice, it, it symbolizes and pictures for us the shed blood of Christ for us. Those symbols are very sacred. So the problem was not with the symbols, it was the way in which they were partaking of that. It was just a, another part of the meal. It's just something else, kind of an addendum on their evening together. It, it was not special to them. It had become mundane and ritualistic. We don't want to go there, do we? We want to always come to the table just as we did when we came to the cross for our salvation. We want to come there humbly and reverently, repentantly, pleading with God not to resave us because once you come to Christ, he seals you, but you come just to restore your fellowship with him and to focus on what Christ did and that that's accomplished for you. But they had made a mess rather than proclaiming that message. It says this proclaims the Lord's death till he returns. It it proclaims the reality that Christ died We do this in memory of him, not that he stayed dead, but he rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's soon to come. We're to proclaim the Lord's death till he returns. So in essence, we're proclaiming all of that each time we come to the table. So if you can walk into a place called a church and you never hear the name of Jesus, there's never a focus on the cross. There's never a a challenge to repent and come to the cross for the forgiveness of sin and the new life that's found only in Christ, is that really 
a gathering of believers that are focused on the right things. The cross is so central to all of that because Jesus is central to the entirety of Scripture and should be in the entirety of our worship. It's a picture of the new covenant sealed by his blood. Even when we pray in Jesus' name, do you understand what we're saying? That's not the rubbing of a rabbit's foot or the crossing of our fingers as we pray, hope so, think so, maybe so. It's us saying, I come here only by the authority of Jesus Christ and his shed blood for me. And as, as a child of God who has been purchased by that blood, I can only offer this prayer in the name of Jesus. That's what that means. And so every time we utter that word in prayer, Father, we are doing so entering into the presence of a holy God at the high cost of the blood of Jesus. So we should never take that lightly. We should never take the table lightly because we are part of the new covenant purchased by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's a constant reminder of his death and his soon return but it might even go to a deeper, more practical matter. The mess they had created was keeping people from hearing the message or seeing it reenacted through the partaking of the elements. It was equal to distracting others from hearing the gospel in the setting of worship. One of the most tragic things is for someone to bring a lost person to worship And out of uh, nervousness or intimidation, somehow get caught up in distracting them and them not really being able to hear the gospel, that would be tragic, wouldn't it? So here, that's what was happening. The mess was distracting from the message. Well, then finally, they exalted themselves rather than examining themselves. They exalted themselves rather than examining themselves. We had a staff member in New Mexico whose wife grew up in a church that had a Lord's Supper table. In the front, it said, do this in remembrance of me. And it also had a memorial plaque on the table for the person that donated the table. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Do this in remembrance of me, giving in memory of this person. Well, it's a mixed message, isn't it? We can send that same mixed message, can't we? When we come exalting ourselves rather than examining ourselves. So not only in 1 Corinthians does Paul challenge them to examine themselves as God inspired him to address them, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he also challenges them to examine themselves to see if they're even in the faith. But here, in the context of the Lord's Supper, here's the challenge, beginning in verse 28. But let a man or a person examine themselves, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Before the table is ever approached, there should be this self-examination. Church history, that has been an important part of coming to the Lord's Supper table. 
not only as individuals, but there would be a church examination of people for their worthiness to come to the Lord's Supper table. There was a time in in some groups where you would have to go through a month-long preparation. You would have to be in attendance. You would have to, to know certain things and do certain things to prepare yourself to partake of the Lord's Supper. When you completed that task, you would be given a ticket that would permit you to come partake of the Lord's Supper. That's how how strongly they believed in the seriousness of that. Also, you could only get a ticket from the pastor because if you were not in a right relationship with the spiritual leader of the congregation, you could not partake of that. I have in my office a, a little communion token. It was used in the uh, church in Dundee, Dundee, Scotland, where Robert Murray McShane preached for years and years in the 1800s for a shortened life, but that token was what they would bring as an expression of their worthiness, not spiritual worthiness, but spiritual preparedness, becoming worthy enough in that preparation to come and partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, When Greg Kazmerzak and I were in England with a group and we worshiped at a church there, when they came to the conclusion of the service, they welcomed all the guests to leave. But if you chose to stay and be a part of the Lord's Supper, you had to receive a ticket from one of the ushers and you had to have that in hand to receive the Lord's Supper. And it was a one-time use ticket. Beyond that, you would have to visit with them about your spiritual condition. They use that in a way of keeping the table focused on those who are true believers in Christ, not just members of that church, but members of the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. So there have been a variety of ways that people have examined themselves and the way the church has assisted in that. The word examine here in the Greek language in which the New Testament was written means that a person should test himself as he would test a piece of metal to see if it was genuine. It's that same kind of test. To look closely, to scrutinize, to investigate, to deeply contemplate the genuineness of your own life. Too many times we do that with everybody but us, don't we? And so we're called here to examine ourselves. What what does that mean? It means examine your heart. Do you have a heart that is loyal to Christ? Do you have a heart that hungers for the things of God? Do you have a heart that that longs to receive the word of God and be implanted in your heart? Do you have a heart of love toward fellow believers? Do you have a heart that guards against bitterness and unforgiveness and extends grace and mercy to others? There are a variety of ways we can examine our heart. If we're not careful, we, we never take the time to examine our heart. Not only does it mean to examine our heart, It means to examine our habits. Now, typically, that's what we might focus on when we examine ourselves. 
We might have a checklist of sins we don't commit. Yeah, I'm good for today. I can partake of the Lord's Supper. Usually those laundry of sin lists that we have are sins that others commit that we don't, and so we measure our spirituality in comparison to others, but Christ is our ultimate standard. So when I examine my habits, why is that important? Well, the heart is the root. Our habits are the fruit. I've had people tell me, don't misunderstand. I know what I do, and I know how I live, but I'm really not that way. Well, the reality is you are. By their fruits, you shall know them. By their fruit, you shall know them. Speaking of false teachers, but that applies to anyone. If your life is not producing the fruit of the Spirit, that gives evidence the Spirit is not at the heart of your life. And so we have to examine our heart and begin there because that's the root. The fruit are the habits in our lives. The heart is the root, the habits, the fruit. So the heart produces our habits, but our habits reveal our heart. They're closely tied, but the heart is most important. So as I prepared for this morning, I reviewed sermons of great preachers in the past preaching on the Lord's Supper. I I looked at lists of questions people ask themselves prior to coming to the table to observe the Lord's Supper. All of them seemed to have a certain angle to them. Uh, They were limited in some ways. Uh, They might have focused on something more than other things. So as I contemplated that and the reflective questions we could use, to search our heart and our habits, I realized the truth of the Scripture. It says the heart is most deceitful. It can really deceive us, and we can be self-deceptive even in our self-examination, can't we? We can be selective in that self-examination those kind of things. So so what do we need? We need an outward opinion. Someone who knows us completely all the way through. We need God to do that, don't we? So this is not an all-encompassing question, but I think it hits the target today. And it will remain on the screen as we partake of the Lord's Supper today. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to pray. Lord, what do you see in me that is displeasing to you? You're not saying, Lord, could you show me how I measure up against others? Am I doing better than I used to? I know I have a few things here, but aren't I doing better? No, none of that. Just asking the question, Lord, what is it that you see in me? What do you see in me that is displeasing to you? That would be a great beginning point of doing some self-examination.
I mean, even as I ask that question of you, I shudder at the way the Lord spoke to me yesterday, even contemplating that. That puts your life under the gaze of holiness. It prevents you from exalting yourself rather than examining yourself. So today, as we contemplate the cross, and the high price Christ paid for us. I think it's good for us to ask that question, Lord, what do you see in me that is displeasing to you? And then when he reveals that, I'm going to challenge you to repent of that. What does that mean? That means to turn from that and to turn to him. We refer to it as a U-turn. It's a change of mind that produces a change of action is the word in the New Testament for repentance. It means that I see things from God's perspective and I choose to lay down my perspective, my desires, my habits, whatever it is, I lay it down and I embrace his perspective as the one by which I will live. Confession simply means agreeing with God. So when he reveals what it is in our lives that is displeasing to him, we, we say, Lord, I confess to you that I've sinned against you. I have failed as a believer. I have justified this. I choose not to do that anymore. And I agree with you about this sin, that it is ungodly, it is filthy. I release that to you, and I embrace your way of thinking, and I pray that you would transform my mind to think about things as your word challenges me to. That's kind of the process. The other thing is, when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, remember Although your focus is on God and you're celebrating Christ, you're also giving a message to people who don't know him. You might think, well, the overwhelming majority of people in the room already know Christ. Well, there may be some watching by Facebook or on Spotify or other places where our service is uh, sent that need the picture of the table and the transforming power it has for individuals and for families as they partake of it in a worthy manner. Now, the reality is not that we are worthy, but he is worthy. So I'm talking about partaking of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. I'm not saying don't, don't come until you're worthy. Well, we might as well never put it out. We'll never be worthy. But we come reflecting his worthiness and partaking of it in a worthy manner because it's worth the effort of doing that. It's about his worth and his worthiness. We would like to thank you for joining us for this message from First Baptist Church in Crockett, Texas. First Baptist desires to be a house of prayer with a heart for people making a difference by making disciples from our neighborhood to the nations. If you would like more information about this ministry, 
please visit www.firstcrockett.org. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you.